0: Please do uh, turn back to Psalm 73, since uh, that's what we'll be thinking about this afternoon. Uh, It's a long psalm, it's a powerful psalm, one that encourages encourages us to wrestle, uh, which I hope we will do. To begin with, though, as some of you may know, I've recently been coaching rowers from my old college. Um, I've only been coaching for a while, uh, a little while, and it's taking a bit of getting used to being responsible Uh, As a rower, you you normally just sit there in the boat and you sort of pull, and the boat hopefully goes in the right direction. But the the coach has to sort of manage and strategize. And my own coach was very good at this. Um, You could never tell what he was thinking, but it always worked out well in the end. We used to meet a week before term began to do extra training so that he could work out who was going to be in which crew. And in every outing, he'd be swapping people around, um, swapping people between boats, changing the crew order and so forth, trying out every possible combination. And we used to sit in the pub after these training sessions and try to figure out what on earth was going on in his mind. Um, Why did he move Dave back to the back of the boat? Why was um, Watson in that boat and not that boat? It never made any sense. So we used to ask, is he just making it up as he goes along? Is this just? Is he just throwing darts at a list of our names to pick to work out the crews? Then the end of the training week would come. He'd pick the crews and we'd look back and we'd go, oh yeah, that's why he was, ah, all of the experiments made sense, suddenly became clear. And our psalmist this afternoon, uh, a chap called Asaph, was asking very similar questions, uh, not of his rowing coach, uh, but of God. Is God really in charge? Does God really govern and rule the world as he claims? Or is this life just random? Are we just tossed to and fro by blind chance? Is there any point to anything at all? These are very good questions, and they're worth asking. How do we view the world day to day, hour to hour? If we're Christians, we accept that God is the ruler of the world. But what difference does that make when we go to the post office or Sainsbury's? Do do we think of our every step as under God's care? Or do we think of life bumbling along randomly? And more sharply, and this is what's really troubling Asaph, what do we think when we see evil prosper and the good suffer? It's a fairly simple and common question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And conversely, why do good things happen to bad people? And most sharply of all, what about God's own people? What about Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New and today? Does God have a particular special care that he acts upon? Or does he just leave them to their own devices? Asaph has been wrestling with this and he wants to share it with us too. And he starts with his conclusion. Verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, those who are pure in heart. This is almost the premise which he wants to test. And then the psalm falls fairly neatly into two halves, which we will consider in terms. So the first half looks at the wrong way to view the world from a purely human perspective. And then at verse 17 it switches to the right way to view the world, which is from God's. So we'll look at those two in turn. And then as a third point, we'll think perhaps how Jesus Christ Himself might have been able uh, to speak this psalm uh, from his own perspective. So to start with the wrong way to view the world. So Asaph looks out on the world, looks out of his window, and he sees evil prospering. And from verses 3 to 12, he gives us this gallery of rogues, despicable villains who seem to meet only with success. Uh, They are the arrogant, the wicked. They threaten oppression, scoff with malice. And it doesn't take much to translate this into our own day. Imagine the evening news and a procession of dictators, corrupt bureaucrats, dubious businessmen, public figures who abuse their positions. There have been a fair few of each in the news in recent weeks. ASAP has in mind the powerful and the wicked, people who abuse their authority and commit horrific crimes. Um, I was minded because it was in the news this week of Robert Mugabe, but there are many other examples. Yet despite this wickedness, Uh, Asaph complains in verse 4, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong, um, literally sleek, as if they were sort of pampered cats with very smooth fur coats strutting around on the world stage. These people are always free of care, amassing great wealth in verse 12. And again, I was thinking of people like Mugabe or... Kim Jong-un in North Korea, and they always do look very cheerful and well-fed and very much not a care in the world. And for Asaph, these figures seem almost superhuman. Verse 5, no no common burdens touch them, no human ills. They're able to revel in their wickedness. And Asaph goes on to describe them adorning themselves with pride and violence, um, as if these were fine jewels and clothes and that's what he's capturing in verses 10 uh, 9 and 10 no not 9 and 10 sorry Four, uh, 6 and 7 this idea of clothing with their sin but the evil flows from a single source none of these people recognize God's government in the world and this is captured in verse 11 which sort of typifies this worldview how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? It's the idea that God just doesn't care. So we can get on and do what we want. Uh, it's called sometimes called practical atheism. Living practically as if there is no God. And it lies at the heart of every kind of human evil. Because if there's no God to protect the poor, then why worry about oppressing them? If there's no God to avenge the powerless, then why not take from them to make yourself richer? And hopefully, if I'm as I'm describing this, you're feeling annoyed, angry. It's infuriating. It inf- offends our sense of justice that people like this should prosper while others suffer and struggle. And just to scale it down, it's probably not only public villains that ASAP has in mind but also personal rivals it's a sort of feeling of well, how did Joe Bloggs get that nice perk and I didn't why do they deserve special treatment Um, I'm having to watch myself with this as I do job applications and I watch some of my peers progressing very well through interviews and I end up resenting them very bitterly for no other reason than them getting the job that I wanted what did they do to deserve it So Asaph wants to consider the whole breadth of human existence, from evil dictators to workplace rivals. People doing things that impact us and getting away with it. And you can't false Asaph's thinking. You know, there are such people in the world. This is, in some respects, an accurate representation of many people. Why, then, is this the wrong perspective to have? Well, let's go back to verses 2 and 3. My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Why? Because I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The problem Asaph has here isn't 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 necessarily that people are wicked. It's how he himself responds to it that's the problem. You get the sense as you read these verses that Asaph's giving us a sort of caricature cartoon villainy Uh, you get the sense that he is fuming this is a rage almost a tantrum and you get the sense that asaph is perhaps forgetting god himself you could take verse 11 as the boast of the wicked how would god know does the most high know anything but it could also be asaph asking god don't you see don't you know anything? Don't you know what's going on? Asaph is in danger of slipping into exactly the kind of practical atheism he's complaining about. And it it plays out, verse 13, surely in vain I kept my heart pure and I washed my hands in innocence because all day long I'm afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Asaph shows us, probably without meaning to, that evil can sometimes expand to fill our view of the world, that the only news is bad news. He's guilty of, a, of, a, of losing perspective, blowing things hugely out of proportion. Uh, to think of a modern example, this has traditionally been a habit of the tabloid press, although frankly these days it's, uh, some of the broadsheets are just as guilty. You know, the news seems to get worse and worse, Uh, And if I may bash my own generation for a moment, it's a slightly sad state of affairs when students feel the need to receive counselling because a a general election went the wrong way, and so forth. But it reflects this way in which evil can expand to fill our whole view of the world. Uh, And I'm I'm not suggesting that Asaph is himself a snowflake student because he does seem to be the victim of actual violence, but you get the idea. In the first half of this psalm, God is small and people are big. For the wicked, God is so small that they can become as big as they like. And for the oppressed people like Asaph, God is small and the wicked fill their whole view. The result is fear and envy and hatred. And under it all is an unwillingness to believe that God is really in charge. Let's move on to the second half of the psalm. As my um, my rowing mates found out when our coach finally set our cruise, what looks random on the surface is actually the part of a much bigger and better plan. And this is the shift that happens in verse 17. So what happens in verse 17 is Asaph, very simply, entered the sanctuary of God. He goes into the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, he leaves behind the violence and the anchor. He enters his vast stone building smells the incense sits and he listens to God's word the stories of creation the story of the exodus deeds that reveal God's character and his promises and Asaph is now able to consider the destiny of all things from God's perspective so from verse 18 onwards you get a new mindset He's looking at things in the long term, in the light of eternity. And he sees that human lives come to an end. All human lives, all human plans will one day come to an end. And you get the same idea in our Old Testament reading from Ecclesiastes. But more importantly, there will also be judgment by God before the heavenly hosts in which every deed will be accounted for this is the reality that will last. And it means that the wicked will not prosper forever. So this is Asaph's new bold assertion in verse 18. Surely you place the wicked on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. I love that he uses the word slippery. The sense of when you start sliding, you sort of think, oh, no, maybe I can stop myself from falling. Oh, no, it's, it's gone. No matter how secure the wicked feel themselves to be, they slide down. And if we think back to our archetypal dictators, um, their armies, their police states, their power politics is not going to save them when death comes. So all their power is actually to God, nothing more than a dream. Verse 20, they are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies, daydreams. Uh, dreams can seem very real, and they can affect us, but to God, they're just to be brushed aside with, uh, with the morning. The greatest triumphs of the wicked are, in the light of eternity, nothing more than a bad dream. I remember um, some of you may remember Jodie MacIver. She uh, she once had a A nightmare that, um, John Tuckwell, our dear colleague, had been very mean to her, had told her off, and, um, which he hadn't. But for the first, for for a couple of days during the week, she was so taken up with this bad dream that she refused to talk to John until he apologized, until she realized, oh no, wait, it was a dream. So these things can affect us, but as soon as she'd realized, oh no, it's a dream, everything became better. And Asaph does capture how, We get a foretaste of that judgment in this life. Uh, You know, the wicked do not always win, um, as Robert Mugabe is currently experiencing, Um, and we'll pray later that um, that will actually all work out for the best. The, The wicked do not always prosper, but that is a sign of their ultimate end. Throughout the second half of this psalm, Asaph is calling us to look ahead to a day when there is no more evil, when it is destroyed entirely, uh, when all flesh will wither like the grass of the field. And Asaph isn't naive. He knows that this will be true of us also. Death comes to us all. He says in verse 26, my flesh and my heart will fail. Yet for Asaph, this doesn't make him afraid. It turns him towards God's love and care. Because God isn't simply opposed to evil. He also cares for his people. So Asaph continues, though I'm going, he knows he's going to die, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. You can just see the change that's happened. We've moved from, does the Most High know anything? Does God care? To, God is the only reality that can really satisfy me. God is all that I have. I love the tenderness of the language here. God is not just a puppet master arranging things capriciously. He's an affectionate father holding a child by their hand as they walk upon the path together. This is the God who sustains us in everything because he loves us. So the trials that we face, even though the wicked may seem to be prospering, God is there, if only we have the eyes to see it. And if we only think about the wicked, then, of course, our gaze will be focused on them, they will become big, God will become small. But if we remember God's care for us, he will be given his right place and evil will be brought back into perspective. And most importantly in the psalm, God will not leave those who trust him unsatisfied. Afterward you will take me into glory. There is a wonderful statement here of life everlasting where God will be our refuge into eternity. This is Asaph's new mindset. It leads him to say, actually, when I thought in the previous mindset, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast. But this is how things truly are. As we come to a close, I'd like to think just a little bit about how this is even more true for us, this side of the cross, than it was for Asaph in the Old Testament. How would Jesus have understood this psalm? You know, he grows up singing the psalms, he quotes them a lot, he knew them deeply. What might it have meant for him to take these upon his own lips? And it occurred to me, Jesus has every reason to think in the term, in the bad perspective of the first half of the psalm. As he's led through the streets of Jerusalem, yes, he sees the wicked prospering. He sees the corrupt priesthood, the oppressive Romans, those sleek hypocritical Pharisees jeering at him. He had every reason to complain and say, "I envy them." And worst as he is, he's raised up on the cross, arms outstretched, he knew what it meant to be abandoned by God, as he cried, "Why have you forsaken me?" He became the brute beast that so many of us are. He had every reason to ask God, Do you not care? Does my Father in heaven not see what they are doing to me? He had every reason to want to exchange places with those at the foot of his cross mocking him, for the nails to be taken out and for him to be able to climb down. And yet to the last he proclaimed the faithfulness of God, When that thief turned to him, he didn't say, God doesn't care about us. He doesn't see this. No, he promised him paradise. Our hearts and our flesh are about to fail, he might as well have said with Asaph. But all we have is with God, and he will receive us into glory. And to the last, he commended his own spirit to God. And then Easter Sunday, he stands amid his disciples and he can say, verse 1, clearly, yes, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Here is the proof, he could say. I was dead. I had been through the worst that the wicked could throw at me, and yet God has vindicated me. And Jesus was, after all, the only one who was truly pure in heart, and as a result was vindicated by God. So this afternoon, we can look back to the cross and to the empty tomb, and we can see God's power and providence. We can see that the evils and the wickedness of this world will not have the final word and that death need not be the end. Because Jesus paid the penalty and opened the gates of glory, he is all the proof we need of God's care and love and power. The reminder that people are small, but the loving God of Jesus Christ is big and faithful. He will guide us through the trials of this life, holding us by our hand, And by our trust in Christ, receive us into glory in the next. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, it is so tempting to see the state of the world and to think that you are not there. Or worse, that you are there and yet you do not care. And yet the life, death, and resurrection of your Son shows us irretrievably that you are in charge and that your love cannot be overcome. We pray that we would fix our eyes on the cross and on your faithful love for us. We pray that you would be big when we are tempted to make you small. Amen.